0: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I'm Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato. Uh, I'm also honored to serve as the moderator at today's policy forum. Uh, One of the common and consistent narratives we often hear in defense of financial rescues is the need to stop panics or bank runs or other types of runs in the financial system. Uh, For those of you who have, like myself, braved reading Tim Geithner's book, uh, if you read it, it's repeatedly a tale of how um, we needed to save the crisis uh, from diverting into various runs, and so various institutions needed to be saved. Um, I will give Geithner credit for his clarity in the book. He's very clear that the central issue is bank runs and that the overarching response to resting bank runs is bailouts. And Again, he's very clear about that. Uh, if one accepts his assumptions, one logically gets to his conclusion, which is that massive government guarantees and bank runs, and that's what we should do. Um, and so... Despite this rationale being commonly offered, uh, and I think Geithner's book is another good example of this, it's rarely examined. You know, there is no real argument in Geithner's book uh, in this case, and I rarely feel like I hear in the public discourse, well, you know, is there really anything behind this argument that you know, we have to stop these runs, or we have to do these guarantees, um, or else we end up with lots of problems. Uh, And so it's often asserted and taken as an article of faith. Uh, Those of you uh, know Cato well and know me well, I don't like to rely on blind faith much of anything, particularly when it comes to trusting government. Uh, So rather than just accept this panic narrative, today's panel is going to examine how real of a threat were bank runs and, and runs otherwise in the financial crisis. Our first speaker, Vern McKinley, is the author of a recent Cato paper on bank runs, from which uh, a lot of the presentation today will draw. I uh, will note uh, our, that paper is available on our website and also available here in hard copy outside in our hallway. Uh, Vern has a long history with working with some of the agencies tasked with overseeing our financial system. He's held positions at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the Resolution Trust Corporation, and the Office of Thrift Supervision. So I guess Vern, like myself, has trouble keeping a job. Um, Vern is currently a research fellow uh, at the Independent Institute while also doing various consulting on financial reform for, govern- for governments around the world. Uh, Vern is also the author of the 2011 book, Financing Failure, uh, A Century of Bailouts. Um, let me highly recommend this book. really gives a tremendous amount of insight uh, into decisions that were made during the crisis. Uh, so again, very, uh, a great read. We had had scheduled as a discussant uh, Marcus Stanley, at the, who's the policy director for Americans Financial Reform. Sadly, Marcus is home with the flu, so I am certain he is using what little strength he has left to watch us streaming. So I will say to him there, thank you for the willingness to appear, uh, and hope you feel better. Uh, In lieu of. Um, Marcus, we will have my colleague, Louise Bennett, who's the Associate Director here of Financial Regulation Studies, offer comments on the paper as well. So uh, with that, let me turn it over to Vern and start to
1: the discussion. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Mark and Louise. Um, Mark and Louise and I have spent a lot of time over the last few years on these issues about the uh, financial crisis. Uh, it's been five years six years since all of it happened and uh, some people might be wondering well um, how long will it last how long will you keep working on these issues Uh, some of you might phrase it a little differently like um, how long are you you gonna um, keep feeding off this issue but uh, I did a book review earlier this year it was on the panic of 1837 So uh, if we can project out a little bit, I think we've got (laughs) at least 150 to 200 years uh, going forward to uh, work on this issue. And I might want to mention briefly, this is an anniversary of sorts. It was uh, 20 years ago that I did the first uh, piece, uh, policy piece for Cato. It was for Regulation Magazine. And doing a quick calculation, that would have meant that I was... About 15 years old. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't think you'd uh, you'd fall for that. But we don't uh, care
0: for those child labor laws. or kind of ignore that.
1: Okay, so a, a lot of what happened during the crisis was uh, an issue of uh, rhetoric versus reality. Um, I'll set the stage here a little bit. This is Sheila Bear, chairman of the or chair, chairman of the FDIC, and. The uh, issue at hand was uh, Citigroup, and they were about to approve at the FDIC board um, a bailout for Citigroup, and uh, she was quizzing one of the regulators, the, the primary regulator of, of Citibank, uh, Citi, uh, Citi the major bank, which is the Office of the Comptroller. And she had a very straightforward question Uh, city in November of uh, 2008 was deteriorating obviously there were some problems supervising it and she uh, asked a question what's your what's your plan going forward what's your supervisory plan going forward what are you gonna do and this is pretty typical of what happened during uh, the crisis it was John Dugan who's comptroller of the currency most people don't know the, the, the job comptroller of the currency, but it's the, the, the head of the agency that's the primary regulator of national banks. And so he went on this rant, well, this is all about confidence right now, not about the capital in the company or its reserves. We'll be closely monitoring the situation, but the issue now is the pen- potential for a large worldwide bank run, and that's what's gotta be brought under control. Uh, we'll go into this in a little more detail when we talk about City in, uh, in, in a case study a little later. But needless to say, this, is, this was a little of a, of a stretch of the imagination when he said it. So you might think, well, if you have an institution like City, what is the response? And traditionally, um, the response, uh, at, at least uh, one source of it is uh, Walter Badgett he uh was the former editor i believe of economist magazine um and uh he wrote a book many central bankers during the crisis cited him but they didn't do a very good job they either left out parts of what he uh he had to say about uh what central banks and other other government entities should do in a crisis they when they cite him, they usually get the first two points here, which is that uh, it should be at a high interest rate and then it should be well secured. What they miss most of the time is the third, that it has to be a sound financial institution that the the funding is, is going to, and this is where most of the central banks got it wrong, and he drew, uh, Badgett did, on a case study, which was uh, Overend and Gurney. This is an institution that not unlike Bear Stearns or one of the other uh, institutions that approached failure, um, was highly interconnected. It was a large institution. If it failed, there would have been a lot of fallout from it. But um, he actually agreed with what was done at the Bank of England, and they allowed it to fail. There was some fallout, but um, it was it was not uh, so dramatic. Uh, that uh, it made things worse, the, the, the economy there bounced back uh, within a few years. But what what's to remember is that the central banks uh, that cite usually forget this little piece about it uh, only being solvent institutions that should be getting the funding. So we fast forward about 120 years. Anna Schwartz is best known for... Uh, being the co-author of A Monetary History of the United States with uh, Milton Friedman. And she looked throughout the 1920s, primarily, and then the 1980s and 90s, and uh, she found that the Federal Reserve in the US had contravened this rule of, she didn't cite Badgett, but she called it the traditional, um, the the ancient injunction um, against lending to insolvent institutions. And she came up with this rule of thumb that um, references a thing called CAMEL ratings. CAMEL ratings uh, are ratings that banks are given. It's uh, just an acronym for Capital Asset Management Earnings and Liquidity. Um, And uh, these bank ratings are assigned to institutions. I'll be talking a lot about it uh, throughout these various case studies that I do. But the easiest way to remember is four and five are bad. They're what's called a problem bank. And a one is uh is the best rating that, that can be achieved under under the Camel rating. So we could go back a hundred years, we could talk about the panic of nineteen oh seven, we could talk about the the depression, but um it makes a lot more sense. And I did this in the uh, policy analysis just to go back to the, uh, the most recent crisis that we had in, in the US. The response in 1907 and 1930 was both just to shut the institution down. In the 70s, they got this great idea to not um, respond to these uh, problem institutions by shutting shutting them down. And what you had was a series of of a number of cases uh, mid '70s, you had Franklin National Bank in in New York. In the in the mid '80s, you had uh, Continental Illinois in Chicago, and then uh, we had also Bank of England in the the early or uh, Bank of New England. I'm sorry, um, in the early 1990s, every one of them was a case of a problem bank. Every one of them was um, a case where they kept rolling over. Funding and strung out the institution let it survive for a number of months uh, or up to a year in the case of Bank of New England and uh, The ultimate resolution was a bailout, which if they would have resolved the institution earlier uh, The the costs uh, to resolve these institutions would have would have been dramatically reduced so the And by the way, if you mention Secretary Geithner's book, uh, what I find interesting about his book is that he's completely oblivious to this period of time in U.S. history. He talks a lot about uh, the various countries he worked in in Asia during the 1990s, whether it was Indonesia or South Korea um, or Thailand, but he doesn't mention anything except he briefly refers to Continental Illinois uh, and and its resolution. But um, the reason that is is because he really didn't work as a regulator until he took the position as president of the New York Fed in, I think it was 2003. So he really didn't learn about these uh, through his work experience, even though he's older than uh, he's older than I am. He's uh, uh, into his I think he's 52 years old. And he lived there during this period, but he really didn't work on banking issues during that time. And and it seems like he, he's just oblivious and ignored any experiences that can be drawn from from these institution failures. And so the Congress looked at these three institutions among all the, the failures during the, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, this turbulent period that we had Um, that was uh, the the last big crisis in uh, in the U.S. And it at least partially got the response right. It first of all made it clear that uh, bailing out these institutions, propping them up with uh, discount window funding from the Federal Reserve wasn't a good idea. Uh, They should have been closed earlier. It's, it's kind of an unfair system where the, the big banks get bailed out, the small banks get closed. And so their response was that they uh, tried to, at least uh, through legislative provisions in, in the early 90s, hamstring uh, the regulators from doing this going forward. They first of all imposed what's called prompt corrective action, which was uh, – uh, a means to force the regulators to, to act a lot earlier. Uh, the, the, the second provision was to uh, force them to uh, consider the cost of an institution primarily. There's an asterisk next to this one. We'll talk about it a little later, but they, they embedded an exception into, into this uh, provision, which made it n- not as uh, strong a language as, as, as it should have been. And then they also limited advances to undercapitalized institutions. These, were, these are institutions like, like the Continental, like, uh, like Franklin National Bank, um, like Bank of New England. And uh, so it was pretty clear, based on that history, that, that uh, um, they, the, the Congress wasn't happy with what happened and they were, they were trying to put some limits on uh, the Federal Reserve and the other regulators going forward. And during this development of the legislation, uh, George Kaufman, I believe he's at Loyola in, in, in uh, Chicago, uh, his, his thoughts on these institutions, these big institutions was that um, it really wasn't that big a, a source of concern. Sure, you had those institutions that were a problem But when you had the deposit runs, the money simply went to a a better managed institution. And overall, there wasn't a big impact on uh, on the financial system in the sense of any kind of what was in 2008 referred to as a quote-unquote collapse of the financial system. Now, this, uh, again, this, this term was th- thrown around quite a bit, this collapse of the financial system. Some people talked about standing at the abyss and all similar types of descriptions. Uh, this, uh, this diagram here is probably w- the closest that we ever came to uh, something equivalent to a collapse of the system. It was during the 1930s. The ratio here is uh, the ratio of bank deposits to currency. And the big drop-off in the early 1930s was uh, caused by a, a number of the bank failures. Uh, the, the small depositors ran to the, to the banks. They pulled out their money and put it into currency. So there was this huge uh, uh, impact on the system when the, the depositors ran. And what, what I'm going to do is we move forward into the 2008, 2009 examples is to see if, if the equivalent happened uh, during that period, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll go individual, uh, individual case by case on those. So this is a good uh, transition to the, the 2007, 2008, uh, 2009 uh, crisis. I, I mentioned here the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. The way I came up with these case studies, I went through all of the report uh, the, the main report and the smaller reports of the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission was created to try to come up with uh, the, the sources and the causes of the crisis. They were uh, initiated in 2009. They completed their work in 2011 and put together a report. And so these are some of the early case studies in uh, bank runs. I would say these were cases where The traditional or the um, the the budget approach was used. The first first was uh, countrywide, which was 2007. Um, What I'll do for most of these, I won't get into the weeds of uh, of all the uh, the you know what caused the run or anything. I'll focus on what uh, Anna Schwartz did with uh, looking at the, the the camel ratings and then um, maybe have a few other comments. But if you want to go into a lot deeper detail, that's, uh, that's provided in the, in the policy analysis. But uh, Countrywide is probably known mostly for An- Angelo uh, Mozilla, who is the, the chief executive officer. He has a, I guess it would be a, a John Boehner type of tan. Uh, <laughs> that Always true. seems to be uh, uh, showing. They were doing fine up until about June or July of 2007. And then uh, their, their June numbers looked good. But then their July numbers started to look bad. And then they found out that they had a real problem uh, borrowing in the market. They went to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve offered to lend them a few billion dollars, but not all that they needed to bolster their uh, liquidity position there was a run on the institution. And luckily for them, uh Bank of America swooped in. They started with an initial investment and then uh purchased, uh, purchased countrywide uh outright. And uh <laughs> in this case, I think the Federal Reserve did a good job. They uh looked at the collateral that was made available um and uh uh, looked at the institution had a had a lot of questions about how uh, good a condition that countrywide was in and uh, Just decided to to not follow through on the lending uh, Second case study is IndyMac. Um, this is a uh, uh, From the uh, middle of 2008 before the the peak of the crisis in September and uh what you had here was it was rated 2 which is a pretty good rating similar to what was uh countrywide's rating um as it's uh, problems approached but uh they had an exam in early 2008 that lasted about 6 months and by the end of it they decided it uh it wasn't deserving of a 2 rated uh, any or 2 rating anymore but was actually a 5 rated bank and uh the situation was made more interesting by Senator Schumer. I'm sure Mark maybe has a few good stories about I remember this a day. good Senator, but I think the joke I've heard about him is that uh, the most dangerous place to be in Washington, DC is between uh, Senator Schumer and a microphone. Is that, camera. Is that oh, about uh, yeah, or either a microphone or a camera. So he decided to uh Publicized a letter that he wrote criticizing IndyMac and uh, that caused a run the uh, Supervisor OTS uh, Made the decision uh, once they uh, uh, Determined that it was a a five rated institution to close it again. This is uh, uh, the the way it should be the way it was uh, laid out by Badgett and and the way that they were logically thinking before September of 2008 arrived. The last of the early case studies, Washington Mutual, also known as WAMU. um, And this is the real start of a real hesitation on the part of the supervisors to give the rating to an institution that the the institution actually deserved. Um, It was a, a, a two rating, Up until 2008, that dropped to a 3 rating. And then there was a big dispute over whether it should be a 4 rating or not. Um, The FDIC went in there and and said it was uh, a poorly managed institution. It needed to be downgraded. Um, The OTS, which was the supervisor, um, was really hesitant. And one reason they might have been hesitant to do that is because... Most of, uh, uh, I should say, a significant amount of their income came from Washington Mutual. The way the, uh, the OTS operated is they charged these institutions for examinations. Roughly about 15% of the money that they uh, got during the year was from these examinations. So if they would have closed the institution, they would have had to make some dramatic restructurings to their operations. Again, this is a, a late response, but at least once they did determine it, it was a a four or five rated bank, which was about a week before it closed. Uh, they they actually uh, did follow through and uh, and shut it down. So again, um, F, FCIC uh, was the source of the the various runs. So this is kind of a, a line of demarcation here from where. Uh, Most of the institutions were closed uh, quickly based on, um, uh, you know, the the, the standards, uh, formula of of Badgett and also Anna Schwartz's analysis. The first one is, and I think it would probably make a good book to write an entire book about Wachovia. I've read uh, Secretary Paulson's book, uh, Sheila Baer's book. I've read parts of Secretary Geithner's book. Neil Borofsky's book, nobody really does a good job of clearly stating what happened with Wachovia, and there's just a lot of things that don't make too much sense with it. It was the first institution, uh, at least that, that I could tell, that was um, the recipient of a bailout, but it was never labeled as a problem bank, a four or five rating, it, it continued to be a three um, throughout the time that it deteriorated. And then um, even up to the point where they decided to give it a bailout, it was still a three-rated institution. But the thing is, it, it's liquidity rating, which is one of the component ratings. You have an overall rating and then a, a component rating. Um, the L in CAMEL is, is for liquidity. It plummeted over the space of a couple weeks. weeks. Um, from August of 2008 to September of 2008, from a two to a five, but its uh, supervisor, the office of the comptroller, uh, still refused to pull its license. So they were essentially taking the stance that it was solvent, but just illiquid. And so I don't, uh, I don't know if many of you are movie buffs, but this is kind of my obligatory reference uh, seeing I'm talking about bank runs to uh, It's a Wonderful Life. This is the scene from It's a Wonderful Life where you just had the bank run and uh, there's a reference to Mama Dollar and Papa Dollar. That was because the, <clears throat> the kitty was down to the last two dollars. And uh, so this is the imagery you get from Hollywood about how uh how the state of a illiquid institution is you get really down to the nitty-gritty you're um you know working with the central bank or otherwise you're working with all your your lending sources and the strange thing is that wachovia wasn't down to two dollars i wasn't expecting that you'd say well maybe down to a few billion maybe down to tens of billions but they actually had about $200 billion in in, uh, in liquid assets at the time that they were shuttered. I'm, I'm sorry, that they were bailed out in uh, September 2008. What they did, they the FDIC and the OCC projected out about two weeks, said this $200 billion is going to drop down to $100 billion, and because of that... Um, you know that's a critical enough liquidity position that that we're going to vote for this bailout. And what's also strange about the liquidity position of uh, of WaCoVia is that their chairman uh, Steele, who was at, at Treasury for much of the uh, much of the crisis, but then he took the job at WaCoVia um, in the middle of uh, 2008, I believe. He testified, and he really didn't say. That much about the liquidity position. He said there was some stress, uh, but again it's just kind of a, a strange uh, con- uh, a con- compilation of, uh, uh, of circumstances with Wachovia that, that kind of don't make sense together. <coughs> and then uh, one of the members of the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission that I mentioned before is uh, Peter Wallace and he's at uh, American Enterprise Institute. He uh, asked uh, Chairman Bernanke a pretty simple question, these are a lot of these simple questions that they don't seem to be able to answer very well. Uh, and he asked him during one of the hearings, why didn't you just, if if uh, Wachovia was uh, illiquid, why didn't you just lend through the discount window, get them through their difficult period? And uh, Chairman Bernanke kind of gave a non-answer. He said that he would provide additional detail later on, but that additional detail never came. So uh, a lot of it, again, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but Secretary, I'm I'm sorry, Chairman Baer in her book uh, offered one possibility that this all wasn't about Wachovia, it was really about city and the idea was that you would let city buy Wachovia and in indirectly it would end up being a bailout for city so this has some plausibility explains a lot of uh, of these inconsistencies and problems they wanted to <clears throat> possibly uh, keep that much liquidity on hand so that when it transferred over to uh, city, that that um, it would bolster uh, uh, city at the same time. Uh, if if they did the bailout at that time. So now that we're on the topic of city, that's the other case study, and this is the last of the case studies. I hope it hasn't gotten too bogged down. But the the main issues are these issues with the uh, with the camel ratings. Again, this is a case where they never they never labeled the city a problem bank it's almost like um if they don't call it a problem bank it's not a problem bank if they don't call it an undercapitalized bank it's not an undercapitalized bank notwithstanding all the issues that the institution has and uh chairman bear again she was pushing hard to liquidate or put in receivership or a bridge bank or some form um, uh, Where there would be losses for the creditors, but uh, she was overruled (coughs) And so back to this issue of the ratings, this is another back and forth between uh, Chairman bear and and uh, John Dugan Uh, it's in the analysis but essentially it's it's this this whole idea of uh you're you're not willing to label uh city a problem bank um, you make some assumption that it's a three rating in liquidity or overall just uh based on the fact that you're proposing a bailout of uh, of city and I, I agree with her last sentence um that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense <coughs> so if i can kind of run back to the beginning really quick. This is that uh, back and forth between Bear and Dugan, where she said, do you have this supervisory strategy? He said, you know, we're worried about a, a worldwide bank run so what I did, I did a little more research on that particular issue, <coughs> did a FOIA request. This is Freedom of Information Act, where you ask the agency for documents. So I asked for documents related to this whole idea that there was a worldwide bank run. They said, well, that's that reference is in this FDIC memo. They referred it to FDIC. Uh, got the memo from FDIC. It turns out there was never any reference to a worldwide bank run. Uh, there was a mention of a run on City, but uh, bottom line, there was no basis in fact for any of the statements regarding a worldwide bank run that uh, uh, John Dugan from the OCC had uh, referenced. And uh, this happened a lot during the crisis and it's kind of a, a a crazy idea that, okay, you want to bolster financial stability. That's the responsibility of these supervisors. But you make up these stories about how inherently in, unstable the system is. And I, I think this has been replicated a lot around, uh, you know, a lot of countries outside the U.S. also. But I uh, just never understood that. I mean... Um, if, if there's a real financial stability issue, I mean, I've worked in a lot of countries uh, that have instability. Uh, you know I've worked in, in uh, Afghanistan and Sudan and uh, a lot of former Soviet republics. A lot of those countries do have uh, instability in their financial system. But um, this whole idea of making up stories about how unstable the U.S. system is, I just never really understood. So to return to this other issue of uh, the rhetoric re- related to a collapse of the financial system. Uh, if there was a collapse of the financial system, the worry was that, OK, people pull their money out. The money uh, is no longer available for lending. It'll, it'll develop into this nasty, vicious cycle where lending will go down, the whole economy will go down, and then the financial system will collapse. But these are numbers from the FDIC about the the deposits in the system. And you really can't tell that there's any blip here. I think this is an area that needs a little further study. But we're going back to 94 here. And it's just a steady rise throughout the whole period. It goes into 2009 and through 2008. And you'd think if there was some kind of uh, collapse of the financial system or near collapse of the financial system, that at some point people would have pulled out uh, money uh, completely out of the system. The reality is, and this was drawn from an annual report from uh, J.P. Morgan, As uh, Professor Kaufman had mentioned before in reference to the 80s and 90s, what happened was those institutions might have had a run, but the money just moved somewhere else within the financial system to a a better managed institution, um, I might add. So it it seems like the best best of all worlds to me that you're you're pulling your money out of a poorly managed institution. Let that one collapse, but then you support whatever way you need to this other uh, well managed institution. Um, in this case, uh, it was J.P. Morgan. Uh, things since the crisis may may make you question whether it's still a, a well managed institution. But at that time, they were receiving 150 billion, as they mentioned in their annual report, in deposits. So it was a, a movement from these poorly managed institutions uh, to J.P. Morgan. But on balance, uh, I'm I'm not finding any evidence that that there was actually uh, a lot of uh, funds that left the the financial system entirely. (coughs) So we could do a lot of talking about non-bank institutions. That was what everybody focused on in... uh, in 2008 and 2009, you had Bear Stearns, you had AIG, you had Lehman Brothers, but um, it, it's it's not a big concern to me um, when these institutions folded. Again, there were, there were there are no individual depositors at these institutions. I don't see anything inherent about insurance companies like AIG um, that. Are necessarily susceptible to runs Um, there was just there's just been a lot of uh, speculation about um, all the adverse consequences nothing really though has been supported Uh, Mark had the book forum uh, for my book a couple years ago we went into detail about that uh, at that point in time but and then the other argument offered is well look at what happened to Lehman Brothers Um, You had a case where it was allowed to fail and um, look at the fallout that, that, that came from that, but really there were no large financial institutions that failed from Lehman. If somebody offers that argument, that's the first thing you can say is that there were no financial institutions failed. There were losses that were spread throughout the system, but no particular financial institution failed. You had the reserve primary fund, which was a mutual fund, which lost a few cents on the dollar, but that also doesn't uh, seem to present a whole lot of concern for me. <coughs> so I think the better explanation of that, there there was a contagion, what's called a contagion, which is uh, an overall uh, lack of confidence in the, the banking system, but that was not so much due in particular to the failure of Lehman, but more so to this uh, inconsistent uh, approach of the uh, of the financial authorities at the time. So to wind up, uh, talk a little bit about Dodd Frank, and this is is kind of a repeating of history in the in the eighties and nineties. You had these l- loans to uh, through the Fed discount window to the big institutions. The Congress made clear that that. Through the legislation that followed, that they weren't happy with uh, that outcome. Uh, but in uh, in Dodd Frank, you have an analogous uh, uh, change. Now the idea is, okay, you're not going to be able to lend to solvent institutions or to insolvent institutions. I'm sorry, um, but given all of the um, the means by which the the supervisors during the most recent crisis uh, uh, were, uh, you know, hesitant to label these institutions either undercapitalized, which would have put restrictions on them, or put them in the label of a problem bank. And they just simply avoided putting those uh, labels on them to avoid restrictions. Um, I have a, a lot of doubts about whether uh, the, the Dodd-Frank limitations are are, are going to be very helpful in uh, in limiting the bailouts, or as President Obama said, I think he said, put an end to uh, bailouts uh, uh, forever, or something, some re- rhetoric on those lines. So I uh, look forward to hearing um, uh, Louise's uh, Comments and, and thank you for. Uh, thank you, sir.
2: So uh, thank you uh, again to uh, Vern. And uh, since I'm stepping into uh, Marcus Stanley's uh, shoes today, I've decided that gives me license to be controversial. Um, So uh, I just want to to, to comment a little bit on the paper, and then I'm going to go into some other observations. I think following any large scale catastrophic or otherwise newsworthy event, we see a tale begin to emerge about what happened and why. And frequently this tale is part fiction, part mythology, and perhaps if you're very lucky, it has a small base in fact. And I think it takes a careful revisiting of the actual facts and circumstances before we can actually analyze the actions, their justifications, and draw conclusions about how the situation was handled, and more importantly, how it can be handled better next time. Uh, obviously, hindsight is perfect vision, although I think in some of the discussions around Dodd-Frank and the post-financial crisis, it has been less than perfect. But um, hopefully, we can rectify that. Now, in Run, 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 Vern McKinley has targeted one part of the mythology that has sprung up around the 2008 financial crisis. And that is, as he has eloquently discussed, that so-called runs on depository institutions, beginning in mid-2007 with Countrywide called for extraordinary action by the regulatory authorities to prevent contagion or runs on other commercial banks. As Verne suggests, the 2008 crisis did not result in a net reduction in deposits in the system. Banks that were considered to be better capitalized and less exposed to the unfolding subprime mortgage crisis saw their net deposits increase substantially. As such, the behavior of unsecured depositors was not an irrational bank run, but rather a flight to quality. More troubling, though, as Verne sets out, was the inconsistent behavior of policymakers. And at the heart of this inconsistency, in my view, was a lack of guiding principles. Had policymakers applied their own tests of financial soundness to distinguish illiquid and insolvent banks, and then faithfully applied Badgett's lender of last resort rule, the 2008 crisis may have had a very different outcome. At the very least, the market would have had more confidence in the balance sheets of large institutions and the statements of regulators. This is a timely discussion because it taps into the recent debates over the proper application of the Federal Reserve's lender of last resort function. What constitutes a bailout? And when it is appropriate, if ever, for authorities to step in? And then what form that stepping in should take? Indeed, the point in the paper I found most interesting was the suggestion by Anna Schwartz that the proper way to deal with contagion is not to inject money into a failing or insolvent firm, but rather to just allow that firm to fail and then to inject temporary liquidity into solvent firms in the system, which may be at risk of contagion. That way, you allow the market to punish firms that have acted imprudently, but you don't allow a systemic crisis to develop. That said, I think there are two further points uh, that need to be developed. And I think the second one, Verne did develop um, in, in the discussion, but I will, I'll touch on it. Firstly, as the paper implies, systemic wide bank runs are undesirable. The financial sector broadly connects various parts of the real economy through payment systems, exchange of currency, loan activities, and underwriting activities, and the real economy cannot function without it. But the paper focuses only on depository runs and dismisses runs on non-deposit-taking institutions as unproblematic. Now, I would agree with Verne's assessment that many types of financial firms, and we hear discussions of insurance companies, asset managers, etc., are non-systemic those failures can generally be contained, and there is no evidence that their runs on those institutions will create a system-wide problem. And while I agree with Verne that the problem of interconnectedness, as opposed to contagion, is vastly overstated, there was again, post-2008, if we listen to a lot of the financial crisis hearings, there was no evidence, for example, that a firm like AIG, the, the, the failure of which would actually have brought down the system. We heard banking. Head after bank heads say, "Well, we only had a billion dollars of exposure. We only had, you know, X amount. So, so there was no way the failure would have would have brought down the system." That said, I think we have seen some fundamar- fundamental market changes that have occurred over the past three decades. Specifically, deposits have been steadily declining as a proportion of the total debt funding market. Investment banks, and this is a specific. The specific financial, non non-bank financial firm I'm going to focus on, but investment banks and the investment banking arms of global banks use securitized collateral in the form of overnight repurchase agreements and commercial paper to fund longer-term activities such as security underwriting. These activities are an inque- equally important creation of liquidity in the market and almost as important as traditional or have become almost as important as traditional deposit loan activities. Yet many people people hadn't focused on the systemic significance of this shift until the recent crisis. This market, up to 2007, was close to overtaking traditional deposit-taking activities as a form of funding. For example, the size of the um, commercial paper market in 2007 was $2 trillion in the United States. It's now about half that. And it was $2.5 trillion in repos, which was, in total, about $4.5 trillion, whereas the depository taking market was about $6 trillion. So it was getting up there. Now, some have ensured that the answer to this instability for runs in this particular market is to ensure ensure short-term funding, as you do with deposits. Now, obviously, we at the Cato Institute do not support that idea. Or to make it stickier and less able to run. So, so for example, the fluid, but um, make it more difficult for uh, for money market funds and so forth to, to 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 pull their funds if they think a bank is in trouble. Now, again, we believe that the fluidity of the market is part of the benefit and part of the reason why it's cheaper to use that funding in the first place. So, perhaps a question is to discuss to what extent. And this is a question, um, to what extent the discount window should be available to institutions that may have a genuine liquidity problem, provided they meet the strict criteria laid out by Badgett. And surely this would be preferable to bailouts of insolvent institutions or assisted purchases, as we saw in 2008. Now, the second issue that I will revert to is the point about consistency of regulatory actions. And Vern mentioned the WAMU and Wachovia uh, issues. And so WAMU happened first, right? And WAMU was a sale where third party creditors um, suffered, uh, suffered losses. But the problem with the WAMU sale was that uninsured depositors did not suffer losses, right? And as a result, the traditional bankruptcy waterfall was disrupted. Unsecured bondholders are usually paid out ahead of uninsured depositors. So while the FDI's, FDIC's decision to subvert this waterfall may have been politically popular because there was this perception that you were protecting depositors, it nonetheless threw the markets into turmoil because it disrupted the expectations of bondholders. And it may well have put unnecessary stress on more solvent Institutions such as Wachovia. So, the the, the moral of the story, or or the point I'd like to make today, is that these regulatory actions have consequences, and that without clear guiding principles about when institutions will receive um, federal assistance and when they won't, we may well end up with another situation like 2008. Thank you.
0: Thank, thank you, Louise. Before we open up the questions, I want to see if Fern wants to take just a minute or so. no obligation if you want to respond to any of your comments.:
1: The uh, issue about the types of institutions i yeah, I, I don't have a problem with lending to a broader uh, broader range of institutions beyond commercial banks, whether it be AIG or uh lehman brothers or uh or bear stearns but um, the issue is whether they were solvent or not solvent or not in the case of lehman it was pretty clear they were insolvent um one of the issues that i dug into with the the documents on aig was whether they were solvent or not and that was something the federal reserve just refused to give up that was a redacted email that um they said that they they wouldn't give us the de- or give me the details on I worked with judicial watch on it so um so I think and badgets consistent with that that you mm-hmm. lend I think there's words about lending to everybody and they, they list off all the all the sources uh or entities that you would lend to um, on the second point about consistency um this is one thing about Geithner's book that, that kind of is coming clear to me now on his philosophy. His argument is that, okay, you're a, um, what's the fundamentalist of the word? From? The moral hazard. For yeah, you, <laughs> you can be a moral hazard fundamentalist up until the time you figure out that you're in a crisis and then you completely flip over <laughs> and do the complete opposite of what you did before you figured out uh, we had a crisis. And, and that almost makes sense in a lot of ways because it explains this inconsistency and the wavering and the changes that, uh, that occurred throughout the crisis. I, I guess he figured out somewhere along the way that they were in a crisis and he completely turned everything 180 um, around in his thinking. I mean, there's so many, Issues with with that philosophy and implementing it, because you you know you don't know you're that deep into a crisis. Who, who determines? Yeah, close. who determines it? If you get six people in a room, uh, maybe you'll get seven different answers, as the the old joke about economists goes. So, uh, I mean, it it just emphasizes how flawed his approach is, and I and I think it does get back to the fact that. He didn't ground a lot of his analysis in what happened in the U.S. He grounded it in what happened in Indonesia with the Suharto government, which was an in, uh, instability in the government. It was currency instability there. It, uh, it was a, a system without deposit insurance. But he drew his um, conclusions based on that situation rather than looking at what happened in the US during the eighties the and nineties and, and mid seventies, which I think is a much better uh much better source of reviewing. I mean I work in a number of countries. The best history to look at in those countries is the individual history of how how crises were dealt with in, in those countries. And a lot of these cross country types of, of applications just don't uh don't work very well. I mean, it's, it's useful to have a lot of country experience. You work in 10 or 12 countries, it gives you a, a flavor of the different options you have. But as far as saying, well, because of what happened with Suharto in the late 90s in Indonesia, we're gonna do this in the US, that just doesn't, doesn't make too much sense to me.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I would certainly agree. And while economists deserve uh, certainly a tremendous amount of criticism, his conflating of macroeconomic currency risk I don't know anybody who would claim that the run on Greek banks was caused by anything other than the fear that they would leave the euro, uh, Mm -hmm. certainly, and that's saying that you had a number of that were insolvent. So let me open up to questions, and first let me say we have microphones around, so please wait till the microphone comes to you. Uh, Please have your question in the form of a question, uh, and if you would be so kind, announce your name and affiliation. Uh, And we have everyone here in the back. We'll start. (coughs)
1: Hello, I'm Robert Shredder with International Investor. Um, Mr. McKinley, I wonder if you could share with us your observations or even uh, anecdotes after the fact that you may have heard of. When the first $700 billion bailout was proposed, it was rejected by Congress. Then we had that flurry of activity, and suddenly they reconvened and passed it. Could you give us uh, any insight on what you thought was taking place during that period in between the two? Yeah, what I would do is I would link what happened with Tarpin that you described. Um, I would link that to giving the Federal Reserve and the FDIC standing bailout powers because... Throughout this crisis, they had powers, the Federal Reserve used 13-3, the FDIC used, I think it was Um, 13-C.
0: Sorry? G, but I'm not correct. Okay, uh,
1: (laughs) and I, I just don't think it's a good idea to give these agencies standing bailout powers that they can use. I think that's primarily a fiscal authority to use that kind of funding And even though it was ugly, when we had TARP where you had the the vote go down and then the market kind of went crazy and then the market went back up. um, I mean, I think that's the way it should be handled. Now that having been said, I work a lot internationally and the quote unquote best practice is that you do vest these powers with the central bank. You do vest these powers with the deposit insurance agencies because you want quickness to respond, but in, this, in the political sense, in, in, a, in, a, in a sense of uh, making these fiscal type decisions go through the proper channels, I think it's a much better approach to have what you had with TARP, where you had to convince people, even though they kind of twisted the reality, they said they were gonna use it to buy toxic assets and they did the- other things and they switched things around I think that was uh, preferable to have have that on the on the political uh uh on the political system make treasury make that argument make them convince the Congress rather than just hand these standing bailout powers to either the federal reserve or the f d i c and when I say bailout powers i mean uh to an insolvent institution, not I. I think it's it's all right to leave the Federal Reserve with their discount window that's well collateralized and is, is short-term lending.
0: We'll have that debate another day, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but I, I think that that's an important caveat uh, back here. Um. <coughs> Greetings, thank you. My name is Dave Hatcher from Packard Associates. Uh, this crisis came to a head obviously during the. Final days and months of the election in two thousand eight, uh, President Bush was uh, pretty much uh, 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 off, uh, no hands, and uh, lazy, uh, basically a lame duck. I've uh, read Too Big to Fail, uh, Paulson's role and Geithner's role, uh, Supreme, and then all of the bank, all the famous bankers and their roles. Uh, could you just speculate a little bit what do you think would have happened if uh candidate McCain would have said uh is there really a worldwide bank run as you say and if he would have slowed things down and said let's uh, let's really look into this and and see exactly what happens
1: Yeah I, I think um I think you largely had a seamless transition between Bush 43 and President Obama during uh, the fall of 2008 and early part of 2009. I mean, you even had some of the people like uh, Neil Kashkari, who was somebody pretty high up at Treasury. He stayed on, I think, six or eight months into the administration. And there was an analogous uh, situation in the the, the the 1930s because you had Hoover. Um, transitioning to Roosevelt. And you also had a lot of holdovers from the Hoover administration that, uh, uh, that 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 stayed on. So to carry the next step out to McCain, I frankly don't think there would have been very much difference between how things played out in the bailout um, area between uh, uh, President Obama, what happened with him, and if if uh mccain i i didn't see i didn't see Senator McCain as particularly uh persuasive on uh, some of these issues he he's the one that's oh stop we got, i gotta stop my campaign go to washington we're gonna fix this uh that i think that hurt him it it made him look pretty foolish
0: not not known for his knowledge of economics
1: right and uh his other his other comment about the, during 2008, he said, I think something to the effect that uh, the economy was sound and, and all the- At uh, uh,
0: least he was trying to instill confidence. Yeah,
1: um, yeah. You know, I mean, I
0: think the, the broader point that there was really no questioning, you know, on, on a bigger level with a few exceptions. I mean, both party leadership in both houses and both candidates in the existing administration all sort of locked arms with the same narrative and of course to me one of the great values of Vern's paper is it questions um, that narrative in a big way you uh, before I take another question over here uh, I will note uh, you know uh, you know about three-fourths of the decline in consumption happened before September 2008 so we were in a recession at that point we're going to be in a recession regardless of, of what tarp did but let me open the question just gentlemen hi my name is Bill uh, I would like to ask mr. McKinley whether he had an opinion as to whether or not the issue of confidence in and of itself could destroy our economic system. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I raised this to some extent because I think um, a big part of the problem, whether it was what I've called in the past chicken little language from these people, whether it's Secretary Paulson, or uh, uh, then, uh, President of New York Fed Geithner about the system collapsing, and if we don't pass TARP, uh, you know we're going to see another Great Depression. I think that had a, a bigger role in undermining confidence uh, uh, than in just about anything. And uh, um, I, I had the um, example also of. Duga, uh, John Dugan, who was the supervisor saying at these board meetings for FDIC that there was going to be a worldwide bank run. There was no evidence of it. I mean, I think the big uh, problem with confidence is, is exacerbated if you have these people in Washington uh, telling all these stories about uh, um, how bad the system is when it there really was no analytical basis for it. So I mean, I think they contributed to the lack of confidence and the reduced level of confidence and the, the, the bubble bursting in confidence, if I can use that analogy, as uh, as just about anything on the on the confidence front.
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe the one way to to, to think about the question is: while uh, you know, the decisions and statements of government actors can certainly impact confidence. The question is: are they more likely to undermine confidence or improve it?
1: And to make it bipartisan, I remember that in. I think it was September or so of 2008, President Bush actually got on TV. And this was when they were doing the push to have TARP. And he listed all these bad things that were going to happen. And there, you know, a lot of them ended up happening. But, I mean, I've advised a lot of either central bankers or people in government around the world. And, I mean, the last thing you want to do is just have your... Leaders go on TV and just do this rant about, um, you know, how bad things are going to get, unless you actually have evidence that that they're they're going to happen, and uh, you know, it, it, it's just amazing to it's me. How... And
0: it certainly seems to be a a general policy of presidents. We saw this in the debt ceiling debates with President Obama and Geithner. If we don't raise the debt ceiling, you know, so in of course the same conversation with TARP, but Bush, they seems to be this willingness to try to create panic in the markets in order to push policy changes you'd like right, to see exactly. otherwise.
1: Or add powers in the case of the Federal Reserve to their existing powers by blaming the fact that there's a quote-unquote regulatory gap or or some other reason that they, despite the fact that there were a lot of regulatory breakdowns, they actually need... Uh, to bolster and increase their regulatory power.
0: Convenient for them. I think we've got time for one more question. We'll take, we'll we'll do two more. uh, This one here, and then we'll take Warren's. Um. My name is Stephen Shore. Was any thought given to forcing Fannie and or Freddie into private hands? Because if a private institution had taken over both of those entities, uh, then we've gotten the federal government out of providing backup insurance for housing.
1: <clears throat> well, when there was the intervention in September 2008, one of the first things Secretary Paulson said is, um, as they were coming up with a policy uh, about how to deal with Fannie and Freddie, was, I'm, I'm not going to kick this can down the road. I'm going to resolve this. And, of course, he <laughs> he did, not unlike a lot of these other people, he did the complete opposite of what he promised to do. Um, you had, in, in Secretary Geithner's book, you had a lot of his rationalizations, why they didn't address uh, Fannie and Freddie and Dodd-Frank. Um, I mean, I did a, a piece back in 97 here for Cato, arguing that, you know, we need to... Uh, Privatize Fannie and Freddie, and uh, I think that was the answer back then. And uh, unfortunately, with uh, the new director of FHFA, uh, Director Watt, Watt Mel- uh, Director Watt, we're going in the opposite direction. I, I think we're going to get deeper into Fannie and Freddie. You saw a little bit of shrinkage in Freddie over the last few years. I think Fannie pretty well stayed about the same size, but Freddie was sh- shrinking its employees, it was shrinking its asset portfolio, but I think that's probably going to go in the opposite direction these next couple years, and Fannie and Freddie are going to be more entrenched.
0: You know, there's um, an the parallel with the question of runs, and so Paulson talks in his book that they did debate going into a receivership rather than a conservatorship, which would have raised the possibility that holders of agency debt would have taken haircuts. and. Part of the concern, I think, implied by both uh, Geithner and and Paulson is that um, the same people who play in the agency market play in the treasury market, and it was a concern that you would cause a run by having those losses. Uh, I will add, I'm a little uh, biased, having been one of the staffers that helped write the receivership, conservatorship language, Uh, but there was a framework in place, of course, which Title II of Dodd-Frank looks like a little bit, uh, where you could have put those entities back into private hands, imposed losses on creditors, uh, and in sorts of market discipline. Of course, Congress, even though it... Uh, Regulators had those tools, chose not to use them, uh, which makes me skeptical that they would be choose to use those tools again. And again, the theme about some of the prompt corrective action and the lessons we thought we learned after the SNL crisis uh, that were ignored. So again, some of this conversation has to be about the choices uh, that regulators make. So with that, let me take a quick question from Warren and we'll wrap it up.
1: Warren Coates, retired from the International Monetary Fund. Uh, one of the things that um, complicates this is that while liquidity is pretty objective, solvency is quite subjective. You don't really know whether a loan is is good uh, and, until it's all, all paid off. But uh, much of what you've been talking about in terms of runs grows out of uh, fractional reserve banking. Uh, I would be interested in your views on the Chicago plan, which is to require 100% reserve backing of, of deposits uh, so that uh, deposit runs would no longer be a liquidity problem. I think I'll probably give a narrow answer to that on the the solvency. I'm. I mean, I I haven't thought too much about the monetary policy side of that, which you're. I know you have a lot of expertise in that. But um, I mean, as far as subjectivity, uh, it, it, I think that uh, Anna Schwartz's ideas about camel ratings—that's one way to judge the institutions whether they're solvent enough. And if you look at history, they've been looking at these solvency issues for a hundred years. I mean, think about the Panic of 1907. You had J.P. Morgan, not the not the financial institution, but the person. He um, sat down with Benjamin Strong, who was the f- he was at Bankers Trust at the time, and uh, um, ultimately became the first. President of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. I mean, they sat down with banks like Knickerbocker Trust during the Panic of 1907, and they they had to come up with numbers, and they were what were they were probably using pencils and slide rules and uh, and such at that time. So I don't accept accept this idea that in a panic you can't come up with numbers to to develop uh, uh, some kind of estimate of insolvency and. and in a lot of the developing markets that you work in and that I work in and others work in, um, I mean, they have that challenge too, but they don't have much data to go on. They don't have historical data. It's just not as sophisticated a financial system where they have databases you can go out and buy, but they still come up with those numbers somehow. It may not be perfect, but this whole idea that you can't judge solvency because it's hard, it's difficult, you know, I, I just, I'm not really accepting of that argument. Yeah,
0: I mean, I I think that there are some some issues there. I think Warren does raise, I I think, an interesting point. There's sort of implied that um, you're at fault as an institution for being insolvent, but if you become illiquid, it's kind of not your fault. Whereas, you know, clearly you have a lender of last resort, you're going to subsidize illiquidity, if you will. Uh, And certainly firms make decisions that impact their own future insolvency and illiquidity. But again, uh, that's a broader conversation. So I want to thank our panelists. Thank Vern for a great paper. Really encourage everybody to take a look at it and as well of his book. And thank Louise for her graciously filling in at the last moment. Um, also, want to thank you for uh, being a great audience. Also, welcome you upstairs to the second floor where we will have lunch. And I know our panelists will t- continue to be around and happy to continue the discussion. Thank you.